Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Escape the ordinary with green and blacks. Wildly, deliciously organic. Sponsor of the Irish Times Women's Podcast. A rich, intense chocolate to savour. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. Now, every year at this time on New Year's Eve or thereabouts, we take a look back at the year for women. And we always have a lot to talk about, but our panellists and Cathy Sheridan this year have definitely got a very full agenda. Like many of you, I have found 2020 to be a roller coaster of a year, but there have been bright spots too. I mean, I have really, really enjoyed working from home and getting to spend more time with my partner and my kids. But obviously, we've all worried about older members of our families and about getting sick and for many losing their jobs. And then there was the stress of lockdown after lockdown that has affected everyone in different ways. Now, all of that is up for discussion by our panellists, Irish Times journalists Kitty Holland and Jennifer O'Connell, along with Felicia Olasania, a.k.a. Fella Speaks, the poet, They talked about how 2020 has been for them personally, the challenges and how they adapted to them, about Black Lives Matter, about the US election. And really importantly as well, they spoke about the hidden costs of COVID, the long term impact on mental health and how the pandemic has impacted women particularly. So here it is, hosted by Cathy Sheridan, our review of this very strange, very difficult year. Back in January, as we began a new decade, we were caught up with news stories about the Australian bushfires, the still never-ending Brexit talks, a then-looming Irish general election, and students from 72 schools around the country began opening time capsules sealed in 1996, containing their hopes and dreams for 2020. God love them. How many of them could have guessed what lay ahead? How many of us guessed what lay ahead? I often think a grand little exercise in humility is to check out the solemn forecasts for the next year. For 2020, none mentioned a pandemic or that a little-known thing called Zoom would help save the economy. Meanwhile, bubbling away in the background, further down the news agenda here, the World Health Organization was dealing with the emergence of a novel coronavirus in Wuhan, China, a disease that would dramatically change our lives. COVID-19 is the prism through which 2020 will forever be viewed. And while it has swept across the world, devastating communities, killing millions and bringing the world's economies to their knees, life has somehow carried on. In today's podcast, we're going to have our annual look back at the year gone by. And join me to do that today. We are delighted to have Irish Times journalist Jennifer O'Connell and Kitty Holland and performance artist, poet and writer Felicia Olasania. You're most welcome. Now, I'm going to start with how 2020 has been for you. And I think you're all going to come with different perspectives, which makes you all very interesting indeed. Jennifer O'Connell, when you look back in the year, how was your life impacted by COVID-19? How did you adapt? Well, I think I probably had two 2020s um, in a sense. Personally, I have found it really hard 
this lockdown, not so much as the first lockdown. I found it just relentlessly grim. I was I was worried. The homeschooling experiment from March to June is not something I ever, ever want to have to repeat. Homeschooling while holding down a full time job. Um, and I say that knowing that I'm speaking from a position of relative privilege. I mean, I, I, I have a, enough space in my home that I could have my own office. Um, and I have a 14 year old daughter who was able to take care of my youngest, who's only six. So I had a lot of help. My husband is self-employed. He was working from home as well. And even given all of that, uh, I found it really tough. So, you know, my heart just went out to people that were trying to do it on their own, that are single parents and um, people who didn't have ideal, you know, remote working situations, who didn't have the space or people with younger kids, you know, people trying to manage it with a baby or a toddler. And um, so I think it was really hard. Professionally, though, I have to say it's been a really interesting year to be a journalist, you know, starting with my year started with the general election. Uh, I did a road trip around the country, which was um, the kind of reporting I think that both of you uh, excel at and, and love, you know, just going around talking to ordinary people about what the issues were that they cared about. And I spent nearly three weeks almost fully on the road, um, you know, just talking to people, which I which I loved. And then I went off on holidays to Italy, uh, kind of buried myself in books. And I didn't think too much about the news or pay too much attention. Sorry, Jennifer, when were you in Italy? In February. <laughs> she asked carefully. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah, in February. So I, I went off, it was booked uh, for as soon as the election was over. Um, and we were in northern Italy, um, but in Tuscany, not in Lombardy, and actually not very close to Lombardy. We were about two hours, I think, from the epicentre um, of what was beginning to emerge there. So I, I remember we flew home on the Sunday and we stopped to get petrol in a in a garage. And I, I checked my Twitter. I'd stayed off Twitter the whole time. Uh, and when my husband got back in the car after putting petrol in the car, I said to him, there seems to be some cases in Italy. And he said, of what? And I was like, of coronavirus. Then we got to the airport and people were wearing masks. Um, and I remember the shock at seeing, I thought they were kind of being totally over the top, if I'm honest, you know, wearing masks on a, on a Ryanair flight back. Um, and from Pisa, not from Milan, thankfully. And then I turned up into work the next morning, happy as Larry, delighted with myself, how organized I was to be um, you know, back in Dublin and in the office on day one after my holiday. Uh, and HR asked me to go home. Um, I, I just I rang them and I just said, listen, just to give you a heads up, like things seem to have blown up a little bit while I was away. Just to let you know, I was in Italy and they said, would you pop down for a word? So, so that was it. I didn't even really say goodbye to my colleagues. And that was my last time Leave. in the office. <laughs> idea that's and actually you know what we'd forgotten about the general election kitty isn't it funny how it seems like about 10 years ago it does it yeah it feels it certainly feels like well last year you know some something yeah. that happened pre our current preoccupations and uh almost as if it um doesn't really matter i mean i suppose and how things have changed since the general election you know that Sinn Féin were kicking themselves they hadn't run more candidates that they were, you know, the, the most popular party in the country. And w within three weeks into the pandemic, Shalia Varadkar was the most popular politician in the country. So, I mean, how things can change and how, I suppose, fickle our political allegiances are, you know, that people were so exercised about um, housing and everything. And suddenly he was he was a hero, you know. It is such a lesson to us all, really, in, 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 in public amnesia. But Kitty, getting back to your own personal 
experience of the year. How was it, Mrs. Lincoln? Um, well, I mean, I suppose like Jennifer, I have to say, you know, I, I'm very conscious, of how, very conscious of how privileged I am and how privileged I am that I, I can work from home, you know, that there are so many people who are, you know, throughout the very worst of the pandemic, we're still having to show up for, for shifts beginning at 6am to collect rubbish and to drive buses and all those kind of things. So if they, they've never had, they, you know, they couldn't work from home. But I have to say, um, you know, and I don't have small children, so I haven't had the kind of trying to entertain tiny children or, you know, look after them. I've really liked it. I've really, <laughs> I um, I've, um, and my brother has sort of said, maybe I'm suffering, which he says he, he thinks an awful lot of people are maybe suffering or experiencing from social anorexia, where, uh, where we've, be, we've become so um, uh, kind of used to the isolation and used to being starved of social interaction that we actually now feel quite safe and institutionalised in it. And, um, and you know, I hear people talking about, oh, it's going to be great when the gigs are back and the cinemas are back and we can all go to parties. And I'm going, oh, I don't know if I really want to. <laughs> I quite, I quite liked had the having the excuse not to, you know, be on the kind of, you know, working hard, socialising hard, keeping up all our social interactions and all the kind of time and investment that goes into that and being kind of released from it. Um, I've certainly found more than a silver lining in it. I, I quite like it. So I found the whole pandemic thing quietly comforting, I have to say. Uh, that's And people probably hate me saying that. Well, I think, Kitty, it's a guilty secret for a lot of people. People will confide this, that... But as, as, as you've both said, you, you, people who say that are generally in a position of privilege where they had choices of some kind. Um, Felicia, how, and we'll get back to that. I think that's, a, that's, a, that's something we should talk about. Felicia, how was it like, how, what was it like for you? Gosh, it's been a really interesting year for me. Um, it's done a lot of things <laughs> that I didn't expect that it would do. Um, and I think one of the biggest things is I didn't realise how busy I would be or how busy I would get. Um, and you can just tell that a lot of people, especially within my industry, arts kind of space, um, they just cut because you're at home. They're like, sure, you can do it. I'm sure. I'm, I mean, I mean, you're not going anywhere. Right. And you'll get, you're nearly like, no, but I'm at home and I'd like like to create space in my home for work and rest just because I'm at home. 24 hours doesn't mean I'm always available. So that's been a really interesting thing to create boundaries in work um, because of what everybody's generally exposed to and what everybody generally thinks um, what tier M level three means to all of us or level four means to all of us. Um, so that's been quite interesting, creating boundaries. But most of all, um, it's kind of like shaped my art really differently to how what I'm used to. Um, this whole year has been just me trying to adapt constantly. Um, I had like all these plans, January, February, March was about to get super busy, especially because of um, St. Patrick's Festival and all the events that usually goes on um, in the month of March. And it was just like a dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Everything is cancelled. And to be honest, um, I think the first lockdown, maybe the first few weeks into it, it was quite disappointing because everything's cancelled. Nobody knows what's going on. There's no, there's no proper comfort from anywhere because the government is just trying to figure it out themselves as well mm. so that was it was really um low on my spirit but i think after a couple of weeks things just picked back up again everybody decided we're just going to adapt the campaign for the arts was very encouraging um the like and luckily i had um 
I'd bought a camera just before lockdown was announced. So I was like, oh, that was a that was a really um, useful buy because it meant that I could stream things from home. I could plug this and plug that. So I had to learn how to be my own technician, sound guy, this, that and the other. So I think this year has taught me to be a little bit more independent um, in how I um, create and put out my art. But um, most of all, I still have really missed the stage Um I, I suppose that's just the artist thing or the performance thing in me. But um, it's very different performing a poem on Zoom versus being on stage. Um, yeah, yeah, and of course I, it is. Trying that, to find... Yeah, it's that lack yeah, of engagement, exactly. isn't it? It's that it's, you're not getting that energy exactly. back. I'm getting it back from the three of you. <laughs> but that's different. I know the three of you. And, and, and that obviously creates a much warmer feeling than speaking to sort of 24 strangers. Yeah. But Felicia, it hasn't, it hasn't halted your creativity. No, not at all. I wouldn't say it's halted my creativity. I think it's forced me to find creativity um, regardless of my surroundings and regardless of my situations. And I suppose it's kind of like enforced and pushed me to kind of have more discipline. Um, so, yeah, you're not feeling it right now and you're stuck at home for the next 20 days, but you have to create art. So there you go. Mm. Um, so it's kind of taught me how to be disciplined and to not need... Um, several different elements in order to create something good and have the same quality. Yeah. yeah. Jennifer, I think it's made us all a bit less precious about, you know, I remember when I was maybe doing a Skype call before, I'd be sort of preparing it for two days nearly and, and preparing myself and all the rest. And now we just sort of turn it on at the kitchen table and boom, there you are. And I think we're a less, bit less fussy about, about things, are we? Yeah, it's certainly more adaptable, I think, to technologies that we might have considered like a bit invasive or just a bit difficult to get around. You know, and I've seen like my own parents never really wanted to do Skypes, even when we lived abroad. But now uh, during the lockdown, we got a nice kind of weekly thing going. So I, I think that was good. And I think, you know, from a like to get back to what Felicia said about creativity, I think it's been a really interesting year from kind of a people watching anthropological point of view, because we've seen every human emotion there is play out in mass scale collectively. You know, so there's like there was anger and there was denial. There was a lot of fear in the beginning. Then we kind of went through that phase of bargaining, the resignation, the community spirit. And on the other side of that, the shaming, the dreadful curtain twitching that I absolutely hated about this year. Um, and then resilience. And I think finally, we're kind of ending the year on a hopeful note, which is which is great. So I think, you know, from that point of view, I think we are going to see enormous surges in creativity and hopefully lots of wonderful art coming out of this year. Uh, and from a, from a journalistic point of view as well, when do you ever get the opportunity to see something like this firsthand, you know, to, to kind of live through it and be able to witness it and go and talk to people on the front line? There's been amazing moments for me as a as a writer, as a reporter this year. Well, we'll come back to that because we're going to talk about the pandemic itself in a moment. But Kitty, let's just talk about the people who weren't so fond of, you know, whereas the rest of us were glorying and getting rid of the hellhole of the commute and all that sort of thing. And we're able to sit in our gardens in the sunshine and that. There was a whole other sector of society that actually, for whom it's been a disaster. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I mean, for, you know, for me and for Jennifer and for most of our colleagues, COVID has been the kind of only story we've been working on, apart from the odd little blip where there might be a court case or something we'd have to cover. Yes. But um, yeah, and I mean, and as we were going into COVID, I was thinking, God, I'll have nothing to write about. All people are going to want to be interested in is COVID. And then you start to realise actually it's affected everything, you know, and and it's affected all the people and sectors that I would write about. 
And um, I suppose the two big stories that sort of um, you were coming through for me were domestic violence and then and the impact on the the really vulnerable, the homelessness and the kind of people homeless due to addiction issues and and that kind of thing. And I suppose lots lots of groups have been hit very um, hard, you know, the, the frontline workers and that kind of thing. But I suppose the people who are so, so dependent on um, services and supports outside of themselves and those supports and services being sort of hammered and having to go online and and people who are very dependent on being able to get out of their house to go to services and that kind of thing have been, yeah, really, really, really badly affected. And I think, you know, we are we are going to see a surge of um, creativity and and a surge of new relationships and all sorts of things possibly after this pandemic. But I think we're going to see a huge impact on mental health. And um, I know we are, it's, you know, we definitely are. And I think we've seen suicides and deaths and things that wouldn't have mm. happened wouldn't have happened otherwise i mean i i remember at the very early days of the pandemic going down to the merchants key project in the keys and talking to um addicts and recovering addicts um who were t- trying to access all their services their na meetings gone their aa meetings gone their um needle drop you know the count- drop in counseling services gone everything that would sort of keep them go getting through the day and getting through the week and people really, really frightened and worried um, about themselves and how they were going to cope. I remember talking to one guy who said that he had um, he'd been getting himself clean. He'd could to get into a residential drug treatment center, and the hoops you have to go through to get into those residential drug treatment centers, you have to you know you have to get clean, you have to get kind of sober, you have to get your life together, you have to get yourself quite organised. And he'd done all that. He'd isolated himself from his friends who would you know might get him back on the drugs and everything. I was about to go into a residential treatment centre only to be told it's closed, you're not coming in. And he was so despondent and he said that he was really, really scared he was going to start using again and was kind of given up and thought I am going to start using again. And then the domestic violence story, which I mean, in some ways, I suppose the focus that we've seen on it over the last year, the huge um, response from the guards with Operation Fuishev. And the huge um, attention it's getting from government and attention from HSE and the, the, and we've got a real spotlight on it. I mean, that's that's very positive. Um, but the, the reason that's happened is because we are hearing that, you know, women and it is mainly, mainly women who are at the receiving end of it are cooped up in their houses with um with partners and abusive husbands and abusive partners who would have in the past, you know, gone to work, gone to the pub, got you, they would have, they would have got a few hours respite every day, and um, to be absolutely locked indoors with that has been, um, yeah, has has been horrific for those groups. Domestic violence has been the big spectre, I think, behind all of this, hasn't it? It's been very hard to lift that cloud off us. Felicia, have you been aware of the downside? We've, 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 been, we've been quite chirpy about it until Kitty began to talk about those awful <laughs> downsides. Um, from what you observe out there, have you seen awful downsides to this? Yeah, I'd say um, people are more anxious. I'd say even within my circle, there's a there's more propensity for um, a deterioration in your mental health. Um, I personally found the second lockdown much harder than the first lockdown, actually. I thought the first lockdown probably gave, <laughs> maybe gave me a little bit of rest. And I enjoyed that. It was summer. You could kind of um, get out your anxiety by, you know, sitting on the grass in the field near you or something, you know, have a picnic. But I think 
this lockdown, um, this one that we've just come out of, it's been dark. It's been really, it's been really dim. It's dark by 4 p.m. Um, so I think that has a huge impact on mental health. I, I know for me, even though my professional life is going great, I I'm constantly feeling like, oh, okay, I need to get up and do something or I need to move around, uh, you know, constantly on edge for some reason because you feel like you're not, somehow you're doing too much but not enough. Um, so there's this really strange dynamic with your mental health and even if everything is fine. And I think um, when you mentioned the so- social anorexia, I'd say, yeah, that that's a really interesting word that we've grown lean from not being able to, eat off each other's energy um, and that's been quite difficult especially if you're an um, an extrovert and you're a people person or that you need to, to engage with people in order to create um, or in order to be inspired um, so I would say those are some of the downsides I've probably noticed yeah, um, yeah. and Jennifer um, is there any point in asking you what your biggest story of the year was? Well yeah I mean it was it was certainly COVID you know and when I think when I think back on the stories I was thinking about it because I knew you were going to ask me this um, and it's just so hard to remember what even happened last week and um, so I did write a lot about the impact on on women and on children particularly um, you know children being locked out of their schools women as Kitty says being locked into their homes in abusive situations um, the strain on teenagers mental health and I think we haven't talked about those aspects of it enough um, and reporting on COVID brought me to some really interesting places over the year. I, I got into the matter, you know, and I was actually on the COVID wards back in the, kind of the end of May, beginning of June. So we were coming out of the first wave of the virus and just talking to the staff there about what it had been like was really eye opening. I think it reminded me how sheltered we all were, you know, that there were a group of people um, that didn't get to stay at home and work from home and had to go in. Uh, and there were meetings in the matter, I know, in the early days where staff were walking out in tears because they were absolutely terrified more recently, I was in the National Maternity Hospital. The master of it there was remi- remembering as he spoke to me how ha- they had trained up junior obstetric doctors on how to operate a ventilator because they thought at some point that they were going to have people in Hollis Street on ventilators because they were looking at the pictures from Italy and this is what it was telling them they needed to prepare for. Um, but I think the stories that really stand out for me at the end of the year are just the individuals and the individuals who I met because of COVID, um, not necessarily talking to me about COVID, One woman who I haven't been able to stop thinking about since I interviewed her about her experience of domestic violence, who ended up having to flee on a plane from the United States when she was seven months pregnant with a toddler on her lap and leave absolutely everything she owned behind because she realized uh, really belatedly, I think, that she was in an extremely dangerous situation with a man who was had been controlling her for such a long time that she didn't realize the extent of his paranoia until he told her. Um, that he was going to have to protect her from the rest of her family and that he was going to have to cut her off from the rest of her family for her own good. Um, and so she she left her house with a, with a changing bag and a bottle of rescue remedy that her, her neighbour had given her. And she got on a plane and came back to Ireland. And, and a few years on, she's still living in fear of this this man who's followed her back and still managing her life. Um, and then, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was in St. Odian's School uh, in the in the South Inner City talking to the amazing kids there. I was actually last there in 2003 as a reporter um, doing a piece on them around the same time of year around Christmas. And I just wanted to hear how they had been impacted by the first lockdown. And it really struck me that day that we have no we haven't begun to tot up the cost of the school closures on small children, particularly. And, and you know, not every child was affected. Some children were absolutely fine at home, I know. But I think that, that a large 
number of children were affected in varying ways. Uh, and they're just their maturity when they were describing how it felt to be at home. And some of them hadn't seen their dad for two or three months because he lived in a different county and they weren't allowed to travel. And one little boy just looked at me and he said, our self-esteems all went down. You know, that was what happened. Our self-esteems oh. went down in lockdown because we missed our friends. Um, and then, you know, I've, I've interviewed teenagers about the the impact on their mental health. And again, I was just really struck by how articulate they were and how mature they were describing so I think, you know, I think we've got through the year. I think we, we flattened the curve of the, of the virus very effectively as a society. But I think, you know, we're going to be talking about this and we should be talking about this for you know, a really long time to come because I think we haven't begun to tot up the cost of it. And one of the things what a cost. that struck me when Katie was talking there as well, like I do think that women have pay, paid a disproportionately high price, uh, higher than other parts of society. You know, when you think about uh, the women in the domestic violence situations, the women who make up a large proportion of the people on the front line, you know, the the nurses in the matter ICU that I met that day, one of whom was still recovering from the after effects of COVID, which she had got while she was intubating a patient. Um, you know, the student nurses who weren't being paid, the women who went through pregnancy this year and couldn't have their partners with them. Um, and then the women who took on the burden, the domestic burden at home while trying to balance their jobs. And even, you know, like much smaller things in the scheme of things, but things that will have a long term cost, like look, women who maybe consciously made a decision to lean out of the big project at work because they figured I'm not going to be able to do this and look after the kids and homeschool and I can't do this from home. So I think there are there are huge hidden costs mm. to the year that mm. we've just had. And while we've done a brilliant job, I think, as a society of keeping the numbers of the virus cases down, there are a whole lot of other issues that are bubbling away. Yeah, it's the, the, the reckoning is going to be so interesting. Say it's going to take a few years, I suppose, for us to really work out what the cost was and who did right and who did the best and whether Sweden was right all along. They're having a bit of trouble now, I think. But anyway, I don't think anybody's found the answer, apart maybe Kitty from Jacinda Ardern. I mean, she seems to have come out of it extremely well in New Zealand. Well, I mean, I suppose she had she was lucky in that she has living on an island. I don't know if that, you know, that is like keep saying people keep saying, oh, we should do what New Zealand did in lockdown because we're an island. But we're also members of the EU. We couldn't have done that. You know, it, legally, we just couldn't have done that. So, um, yeah, I mean, she's she's a very refreshing, um, you know, she's young. She's got she's got her kids. I mean, she, was, she would bring her baby in breastfeeding into, into Parliament and she would give do Zoom addresses to the nation saying I've just put the little ones down and so I think she's very human in that way um, and and I to an extent I think she applied an awful lot of common sense um, mm. you know and and brings a lot of common sense to her and I suppose womanly common sense if, if I may be so bold um, about kind of running the show um, and and then a bit of luck on our side as well with the fact that they're on an island and they could do that you know and they're quite far away from from um, other land masses, obviously, apart from Australia. But uh, yeah, New Zealand has done very well. Yes, you're right. <laughs> I think the women did well, actually. You know, I, 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 when you look around the world, I think this is kind of quietly acknowledged at this stage that women leaders did extremely well. Uh, but we'll leave that for the moment because we don't want to gloat, really. Um, <laughs> Felicia, I'm going to go to you because this is something I'm sure that impinged on you very personally and directly, which was the big story of the summer in many ways, which is the Black Lives Matters uh, movement and, and the, the, um, the killing of George Floyd, which I think is an image that's scorched into our psyches at this stage. Did you feel a surge of hope during that or, is, or was, it, was it more despair? Or was it more of the same or how have you how have you come out of it now in your in your own thinking? 
I don't know if I felt hope or despair. I think most of all, um, I felt angry that we were we had to have this conversation here in Ireland, that it was even necessary. I felt angry that um, we were marching and a lot of people weren't even marching in one accord. Um, I felt there was a lot of um, anger with just... Um, kind of like it was in solidarity to America for a lot of people and but it was just to show support but it wasn't something that you know we have to deal with here in Ireland I felt some glimmer of hope in seeing the numbers and the repetition of the um, of the marches and that that did make me feel good about where we are in Ireland about the conversation but I feel like after the marches there was a lot of conversation to be had there was a lot of um there was a lot of addressing of, of how racism impacts the black Irish community here in Ireland and different ways that it looks like that's different to America um, and how that it's just as just as um, just as triggering, but differently, um, differently observed in, in our society. We don't have the same um, relationship with the guards as, you know, um, our black American brothers do. So. It's been a lot of back and forth and it's been a lot of um, quite talking about it in a um, intellectual kind of discourse rather than a humanity and humanitarian kind of discourse. Do you know what I mean? Um, there's been a lot of like teasing it out as, a, as an intellectual um, thing to play around with. Um, um, but I think in many ways we are trying to have more of the conversations. Um, I think we're, we're trying to advance it and educate ourselves. Do you think, Felicia, we have advanced it? Do you think we have moved on? I think I think we're pushing it forward. I think there's more than just it's gone past the really um, simplistic question of is there racism in Ireland? Mm-hmm. It's gone past that now to what does it look like? How can we fix it? How do we change the the language around it? How can we be better people when we see it happen? Um, so I think we are advancing the conversation like that. And there's been little, lots of little networks and small groups that has happened um, as a result of it that's put on panels and conversations. Um, one would be the Galway International Talks, where I was on stage with um, a few incredible women, Amanda Ade and Toby Lawal, and we were talking about racism in Ireland. And it got quite emotional and uh, and luckily we had it with Roshan Ingle, who's a great moderator um, and and who created a really sensitive space where we could really open up and share. But it's it's quite difficult on your person as a black Irish person. It's difficult on your mental health because it's beyond just, oh, I, I want to educate people on this or I want to share my thoughts on this. It's about you. You know, it's about your livelihood and your humanity. And it's kind of like when you... When you sometimes feel you have to justify it in order to educate or further a conversation, it can be quite yeah. difficult in your mind. Um, Jennifer, did that impinge on you in a depressing way or in a way where you thought, well, finally now we're starting to talk about this? I think um, I felt, you know, because a lot, of, a lot of the second half of the year, I suppose, was taken up with questions of what was going on in the US and with Trump's election and with the Black Lives yeah. Matters. Um, movement and, and you know I did sort of think is this a tipping point and the answer is I don't know and I, I think it probably isn't a tipping point for the world in terms of recognizing the impact of racial inequality when you look at the fact that 74 million people in the United States voted for Trump again um, and I think there hasn't even really been an acknowledgement about how much of that Trump support is informed by by racism by endemic racism it's, it's not a coincidence, I think, that this year the U.S. census predicts that less than half of American children will be white. 
And that's the first time that's happened. Um, and I think that there, there is, you know, amongst a certain type of Trump voter, that's an issue that they're they're they're, they're trying to stop that happening. They want to uh, retain their position in the social structures in American society and they're not willing to give it up. So, you know, I was thinking about I was thinking, you know, is this the equivalent of the Me Too movement a couple of years ago? I, I don't think it is. I wish it was. But I don't think it is in that, you know, one or two moments will sort of spark this cultural revolution, this huge moment of reckoning where we'll all look at our own behaviour and and recognise the endemic racism, even in our own behaviour in the society that we move around in. Uh, and as for Ireland, I think we're so far away from even acknowledging um, the racism that's in this society. We haven't even started to have that conversation. Um, and, you know, when you look at things like the direct provision system, it, it, it's a system which is fundamentally othering of people who come here from, from other countries to try and make a better life or, or because they're fleeing um, dangerous situations in their own country. And they arrive here and they're sort of locked away in this very difficult situation um, where they don't have space, they don't have privacy, they don't have the freedom to decide when they'd like to eat, when they what they'd like to eat, when they'd like to cook. Uh, and they're very limited in their interactions because of, by virtue of the system, it keeps them othered and it keeps them apart from the rest of society. So, you know, I would love to think that 2020 was a tipping point and, and, and was the beginning of a really important, and maybe it is the beginning of an important global conversation about racial inequality, but we are so mm. far from having it and we're so far from having it in Irish society. I think we've a really long way to go. Green and Blacks. Wildly, deliciously organic. A selection of ethically sourced flavours combined with a rich cocoa intensity. Kitty, Jennifer there hit on the on the US elections, uh, which became almost like a soap opera for people watching John King on CNN and that sort of thing. And I still feel that slight sense of nausea the night that Trump won Florida. You know, that early thing, even though you, we've been warned that they, all the Reds were going to come in in the early stages and everything. Were you very into that, that viewing at that stage? Well, no, I went to bed. I, I, didn't, I, I didn't, didn't stop. I, I just want to come back on the racism thing, though, because um, I, th- I think it's really important that, like every every time we white people talk about racism, we 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 sort of look to people like Felicia and black, you know, but people of color to explain it to us. And I think we really need to start looking at ourselves and talking to ourselves about it. What what is it about us white people about that we're why are we racist? Because why? You know, people shouldn't have to have been explaining it to us all the time. And I think we really need to start looking at how we benefit from it as white people. Um, why are we so resistant to acknowledging that we are live in a really systemically racist society that um, that we uh, kind of there's a sort of almost like a white solidarity that we don't call people out on when we see and hear racism happening, that we don't want to upset people. We really need to look at our our, our own behaviour in that. And I mean, if I see someone being racist, I do call them out on it. I usually get called a bitch or something like that as a result. And people look at me really uncomfortably. But I just cannot bear to look at people abusing people behind shop counters or giving people a hard time on the Lewis because of the colour of their skin. And we, we, we white people need to start challenging our racism and not be looking to people of colour to explain it to us. 
we're we're a really nasty lot, us white people, and we benefit from it and we benefit from it in our workplaces, in our schools. Um, so that's what I would like to I think we really need to, you know, challenge ourselves a lot more than be patting ourselves on the back and saying we're good people and we will talk about all those horrible racists. We're yeah. racist. We benefit from it. Well, I want to say that actually I think the time for explanation has gone too, Kitty. But I also think that getting Felicia's perspective on the past year in terms of Black Lives Matter is terribly important. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But it must be exhausting to explain it all the time. Felicia, is it exhausting? Yeah, I'd say it's definitely exhausting. I think one of the most exhausting parts of the racism conversation is trying to convince Irish people that racism exists in Ireland as Irish people. Um, And I think it's, when you mention white people, I think it's interesting because... Like I was reading something in the past year that explained how um, Irish people kind of became white or became accepted into whiteness as a as a as a social structure, and how that kind of evolution builds into you know the American fabric, and how you know finding power within the American land meant you know it meant um, creating societies that would elect people and then get small governance and get into police forces and then in turn get into politics. And a lot of people don't even realize how um, how large a percentage the police force in America is Irish. Um, and therein lies an awkward conversation where the descendants of the people that I'm currently living with and growing with and I'm from are doing these things to black brothers over there. And over here, we can't even acknowledge like, oh, yeah, it happens here, too. We can't even get past that conversation because a lot of Irishness is built on um, shared oppression that we, you know, we we have oppression too. We can't possibly be racist or abusive or any of these things. Um, so that's that's probably one of the most difficult parts of the conversation. That's quite exhausting. That whole um, that narrative that we shared once as no Irish, no no dogs, no blacks, and and not being able to get past that point where you guys as white Irish people have evolved and moved forward into the social structures and where we haven't as black people. Yeah, I'll be I'll be honest, Felicia, and say that when I I watched with the names of those policemen involved in the killing of George Floyd and I dreaded hearing an Irish name come out of it. And fortunately, for once, there was no Irish name involved. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely spot on there. Then, But the number of Irish names that do come out are absolutely horrendous. Jenny, can I go back to you about, about, can we just talk about the US election for a minute? Because Kamala Harris is a big part of that narrative. And I was slapped down before when I suggest this might be actually a step forward uh, by on another podcast, and I'm still stinging from it. But it has to be a good thing, doesn't it? No, it, it absolutely does. I, I just wanted to come in on one small thing on the on the racism point that I think is, is really worth pointing out. It's very current. It's, a, it's some ESRI data that came out yesterday. Since we've been talking about COVID and we've been talking about racism, I just want to leave you with these data points. Um, those of black and black Irish ethnicity, those of Asian ethnicity and particularly Irish travellers have been massively overrepresented among COVID-19 cases in this country. If you are of Asian ethnicity, you're 2.3 times as likely as a white person to have got COVID. Um, if you're black, you're around 1.9 times. And if you're a traveller, you're about two and a half times uh, as a non-traveller white Irish person. So it's everywhere. It's not just in America. And um, and I just thought, since we're talking about that, we've been talking about covid 
that I would like to just bring that into the conversation. But I'm going to move on now because I know we've we've got a lot Do, to pack in. I want to discuss Kamala Harris. Yes. And I, she, I she was a bright point in my year. I insist we talk about her. <laughs> and I absolutely love Kamala Harris. Look, uh, you know, I, I wasn't convinced about her early on in the campaign. I read um, an op-ed in the New York Times that painted her as not at all as progressive as, as she claimed to be. Uh, and I wasn't sure about her. She wasn't that much on my radar. I watched a couple of, uh, of uh, speeches that she did. I watched her in doing some of her interrogations in, in the US Senate. And I thought, yeah, she, she's she's pretty cool. You know, she's she's ballsy. But I think she has just broken into the public consciousness in a way that we haven't seen um, and, and brought some fresh perspective and some fresh blood. And for me, the moment when I thought, oh, maybe she's a really interesting person was when Trump responded and um, when, when when Biden announced that she would be his running mate, Trump responded by calling her, I think he called her nasty, something like four times. He called her a mad woman and he said she was the meanest, most horrible, most disrespectful member of the Senate. So I thought, yeah, she's she's the one for us. Great. She's the one. <laughs> Felicia, yeah. I see you I see you vigorously nodding there. <laughs> yeah, that means she must be great if non dis- <laughs> yes. if if Trump disapproves. Yeah, she's awesome. <laughs> great. So we're all agreed on that. No, and and uh, I don't agree uh, anyway. <laughs> Oh, oh, Kitty, you don't. Well, from well, you went from... to bed the night of the election, so really, obviously, you <laughs> well, from didn't what want I've any of about them. Her, I mean, Kamala Harris seems to be only interested in Kamala Harris, to be honest. I mean, she's uh, she's a career politician. She, when she was the district attorney uh, the, in California, she seemed not very good on people of color and um, people in poverty and people on death row. And she, uh, yeah, she's not good on criminal justice system in terms of progressive politics. And um, she really sucked up to the elite in the um, law enforcement agencies in California, kind of doing whatever they wanted. So I don't know. I don't think she seems to have any real ideology except promoting Kamala Harris. So we'll see. Well, then again, we had a wonderful um, district attorney from, I can't remember where, Rachel Rollins was her name, on a podcast last year, who actually praised Trump for his work on criminal justice. It was the one area where she thought he actually had done some good. So I suppose we're talking about nuance here. Um, And it's hard to be nuanced about Donald Trump, but nonetheless, it's... And it is important, I think, as well, like what she represents matters, too. I do agree that she's a bit of a a vacuum on ideology and and it's hard to know what she really stands for, as Kitty says. But I I think that, you know, just having a a, a mouthy, clever, fearless woman of colour as vice president of the United States, that alone is a powerful message. I completely agree with this. I hope you're all Mm. nodding furiously, but you're not. Uh, but nonetheless, <laughs> so we're going to move on to something altogether more, more, uh, alt- more light, I suppose, which is we're going to talk about books. Um, I don't know how much reading you've all done this year. We're all supposed to have read loads and loads. I have, I confess, I don't think I finished a single book this year. I couldn't focus for a long time. Kitty, did you do much reading this year? Yeah, I, I did. Yeah, I did a bit. Um, I, yeah, I read, I'm sure everyone's read this, but um, Where the Crawdads Sing. Absolutely adored that. Um, and Burial Rights, it's an Icelandic novel, which is uh, wonderful as well. And at the moment I'm reading a slightly odd book. It's, oh, it's kind of half novel, half journalistic about um, Nazis, but it's uh, it's, very, it's called HHH, so, but it's it's really good. <laughs> Kitty, if I may say, so that all sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> 
I have the crawdads on my on my bedside table. But one of my daughters said it's, she loved it, but she said it's quite sad. It is, but it's, it's beautifully written. It's absolutely mesmerizingly yeah. written. And it's written by a woman who um, was a specialist in kind of marsh ecology and um, botany and the um, and her descriptions of the birds and the grasses and the insects and the wildlife. It's, it's beautiful and it's a very gentle story but it is it is a bit sad but it's it's beautiful okay i'll i'll review my 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 approach to it kitty uh, felicia have you done much reading this year yeah um some books i remember more than others but i, I generally like re- reading sometimes i'll start a book and not finish it but i don't believe in you have to finish a book if you've lost interest it's that's just a really weird thing <laughs> um you bought it damn it it's yours <laughs> um so i read Tati by Christine Dwyer Hickey, um, mostly because I had to perform it <laughs> on stage, but I thought it was oh. a great book. Um, I also read Poor by Caleb Femi. It's a poetry book and it is probably one of the most stunning pieces of poetry that I've ever read. Like it, it was like gut wrenching, just every every page. So that was really good. Um, What's it called again, Felicia? Poor by Caleb P-O-O-R. Yeah, yeah, poor. Okay, I must write that down. I don't read enough poetry at all. Yeah, it's really good. By Caleb Femi, F-E-M-I. Yeah, um, and the last book that I really remember is Don't Touch My Hair by Emma Dabiri. That was a really good book. Um, and then coincidentally, I got to um, interview her a few weeks later um, and it was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's always um, lovely. <laughs> yeah, I really didn't think they were going to let me just talk to her like that um so it was a site it was for the science gallery and they were like oh yeah you know just read the book and here are some of the questions if you want to talk to each other blah 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 and they thought and they made it sound like it would be really casual and then I get there and they all turn off their mics and it's just me and her and I'm like oh my god I'm so glad I took notes I'm so glad I read the damn book um (laughs) well what I like about your list is I think two out of three are Irish women are they yeah. yeah, that's excellent. Because I was because we, Jenny, we've had some um, some really great Irish successes this year, and we've had for a few years, as we know. What, have you had time to read? Yeah, I, I actually I was in the privileged position that I was a judge on the Dorky Literary Awards, um, which was announced in the summertime. So I I had to read, and I did find it really hard. I think all of the judging panel agreed that initially in lockdown we found it hard, but once you got into it, it kind of it was like riding a bike. It was like okay, this is how I read a book. Now I remember how to focus on a book. So um, and then, you know, once we once we finished reading that, like I'll come back to that in a sec, because one of my books of the year is actually the book that, that we gave the award to. Um, but, you know, I found myself reading a lot about women's interior lives this year in, in really interesting ways. Um, I loved Nisha Dolan's Exciting Times. It was kind of very dry and very deadpan uh, and, and felt, you know, as I was reading, it's very kind of it was easy to read. And, but yet the characters really stayed with me and they weren't very likable characters. Uh, but her voice and her tone um, and, and and the kind of collection of unlikable people she comes across and the people who are sort of trying to figure themselves out did have an impact on me. I absolutely loved Kylie Reid, uh, Such a Fun Age, which is a really incredible book about racial tensions in the United States, but again, told in a way that's incredibly um, readable um, and really interesting, well-drawn characters. Um, I loved Louise O'Neill's After the Silence, um, kind of a, a, a different book and, and more of a thriller and more of a kind of a page turner, but it, it was a great book as well. Keelan Shanley's A Light That Never Goes Out. Um, mm. I had the privilege of interviewing Connor Ferguson, Keelan's husband, uh, yes. who wrote the final chapter of that book. 
Um, that was hard. It was a, it was it was tough to read it, but it was also a really lovely read, and it was a reminder to kind of cherish all that's precious that you have. Um, and then I, I sort of felt like I've read a lot about younger women's interior lives. And then, um, but one of the books that I absolutely loved this year is also by Christine Dwyer Hickey, who I think has flown under the radar a little bit um, until this year. And then she won a number of awards for The Narrow Land, which I cannot recommend highly enough. It's it's empathetic. It's moving. There's so much skill and restraint in the way that she writes about her characters and uh, motivations and in her lives. And it, it is a portrait of this, um, the strains of a long marriage and also the strains of being married to somebody who's seen as a creative genius when in fact you're pretty creative yourself and very talented and you have to take second place because you're the woman and, yeah. and he's the man. There's a familiar yep. story <laughs> now. Uh, let us turn briefly to television because it did produce the old traditional water cooler moments which we had almost forgotten about because we all watch it so differently now. And I have to confess that I, I, I joined the, the, the bandwagon at certain points. I mean, I ignored, Kitty, I ignored normal people for a long time. And I finally tuned in when the whole country was absolutely rabid about it. Did you watch Normal People? I did. Yeah, yeah, I did. And uh, you know what? I didn't want to like it, but I really loved it. <laughs> so, I, yeah. I was Me like, too. oh, this is there's so much hype. It's just going to be. Uh, yeah. Um, and it kind of made me nostalgic for being a teenager and all that kind of angst in a nice way, you know, not in a yeah. kind of like, oh, my God, I'm glad I'm not going through that anymore. Yeah, I th- I, th- I really, really loved it. I just thought um, I thought that Paul Mescal and Daisy Edgar Jones were wonderful. I thought she was fantastic. I don't think she he's stealing all the limelight, perhaps because yeah. he's one of ours. But yeah. I thought she was absolutely wonderful. And she's playing the lead in when the where the crawdads sing. Um, is she in the movie? Oh, that's very yes, interesting. She is. Yeah. Uh, so when, she's, when you think of Wild Mountain Time, the the female characters and that, uh, the performances are so. You know, they could have got somebody wonderful to do that in an Irish accent. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, yeah, but did, she, yeah, they, I just, yeah, she was so sort of, yeah, they, they were, they're very restrained performances, but very, yeah. um, and very difficult, I'd say, to do because they were so restrained and awkward and, um, but very moving. And a wordless result. a lot of the time. Felicia, did you watch any television? I've just been quite a Netflix kind of girl. Um, I've really gotten into um, Big Mouth. Um, when you were talking when Kitty was just mentioning of feeling like a teenager again I was like reliving puberty age (laughs) Um, (laughs) with Big Mouth and it's I don't know if you know about Big Mouth but it's basically a cartoon that focuses on children's puberty stages and like you know they talk about the first period the first time you your boob starts growing and they actually get the vagina to talk and be like, oh, oh it's a great day to be bloody today, you know? And it's awful because you're like, oh my God, this was our lives. <laughs> <laughs> and all these really ridiculous things. And like, there was a moment that I really loved um, in one of the recent uh, seasons where they went to summer camp and one of their friends came back transgender. And um, she, one of the girls was like, oh, I really hate this person. Da, 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 da. They're so annoying. And her hormone monster was like, do you hate her because she's transgender? She's like, no, I hate it because she's a bitch. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, that is, yeah, that's such a teenager thing to say. Well, you just Felicia, don't like was, them. That was absolutely not unexpected. Now, I must say, I thought you were going to say Tiger King or something. Jennifer, did you get into anything or had your time? 
box sets have got me through this year. You know, it's it's it, the, literally the only kind of a joyful a punctuation to my long days of lockdown have been, you know, what box set are we stuck into at the moment? So I have had, I have had so many. I've had a really hard time thinking about them. Um, I loved, and I do love the way kind of the trajectory of our year was mirrored in our TV viewing. So we did have that sort of really beautiful, painful nostalgia with normal people that we all got sucked into. And then we went a little bit trashy with Tiger King when we were kind of running out of patience with lockdown. And then we went into the complete over the top hedonistic pleasures of selling sunset which i oh i love it i love selling sunset <laughs> And so then we're kind good. of You're we've ended up on a more intellectual people. note. <laughs> <laughs> with the Queen's Gambit, we've kind of yes. come the full circle <gasps> now and we're ending yes. the year, which the Queen's Gambit is wonderful. I also Stunning. discovered the morning show, which I can't recommend highly enough. I loved it. Uh, and I'm currently watching The Undoing, um, which is really good. Which as well. is a great watch. It's a great watch. It ends quite madly. It's bonkers at the end, but I just thought it was a great, great series. Um and the Queen's Gambit, what I loved about it was that uh, you kept expecting something evil to happen and it didn't. Yeah, it, it was it was kind of feel good in the end, even though she had all these challenges. Um, it wasn't it, it was kind of unexpected in certain ways and, and, and quite gentle. Anyway, I'm very glad you mentioned that. Jane. That's cheered me up enormously. You've all cheered me up enormously. Now, I did want to ask you one last thing. What did you learn about yourself? that you're going to take into 2021. Katie, can we start with you? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I know that's, um, a, that's a, it's a horrible <laughs> question. Uh, but I think people like to hear answers to that sort of thing. Um, mm. This is probably go, harkens back to the social anorexia thing. But the, and one thing I've realised <laughs> is that I don't have to go and, you know, to all these social events. And not that I was leading this amazing, having this amazing social life, but I'm, that I'm kind of I'm very content. That, that's what I've realised. I'm very content in my life, um, you know, that I don't need to be out gallivanting around the place or, you know, make, meeting lots of friends or, you know, and I'm a single mom. And the, the, so and there's always this sort of sense as a single mom that you'd, you'd like to have a relationship outside your life with your, with your children. And I've realised I really don't need that. I'm absolutely so content at home with me, my t- my two kids and the TV and the gin and tonic <laughs> and the odd walk. And I'm very happy in my life. That's I've realised I think I've, um, I'm going to give myself a break on feeling that I need to find something more. That's what I've realised. Kitty, that's fantastically encouraging and reassuring. <laughs> Felicia, what about you? And this is this is definitely me too in my own horn, but like I'm also really good at what I do. And I it's it's gotten me to like realize that really particularly because I've been in really terrible moods and really horrible mental spaces and created great art that I'm proud of. So yeah, I'm very bendable. <laughs> that is good. brilliant. Jennifer, what about you? Um, I don't know that I learned anything new. I think it probably reinforced things that I already knew, like remote working is a fantastic lifestyle, which I've been doing it for a few <laughs> years now, and I highly recommend it. And I think everybody else has now joined me in that. Um, I, I, I'm, I don't have much of an interior life. Like I'm an extrovert and I like being among people. I knew that anyway. This year has reinforced that. I'm finding the long periods at my desk where I only speak to people over the phone, kind of hard going. I do miss the face-to-face contact and chatting to people. Um, and then I suppose on a shallower note, I learned that the way to approach a lockdown, I, I mean, I kind of approached the lockdowns like my first pregnancy and my second pregnancy. So in my first pregnancy, I just I ate all around me. I didn't exercise. I completely indulged myself. I didn't feel the need to, to leave the house. And I ended up like really unfit and really unhealthy. So with the second lockdown, I've been much more uh, rigid and disciplined like I was in my second pregnancy. So if we go into lockdown in January, I'm expecting to emerge a full on athlete. <laughs> 
I've been way better this time. <laughs> wow. I salute you all. That has been actually very encouraging, reassuring. Really, it's been it's been wonderful. Thank you all very much. And I'll tell you, we're, I'm delighted to say we're going to go out on Felicia reciting her really wonderful poem called Still. It's a look back at the ravages of the pandemic and all the little threads that came out of it. And it caused quite a stir. So now we're going to hear Felicia. And thank you all so much. That was really great. Still. Covid came and Ireland stood still. Shocked at how much could gather at our doorsteps like dust. We wrestled with what we might, what we may, how life would continue the ways it must. Stood still. The virus ate through limbs of every family tree. It choked out the lives we built roots around. It emptied out purses, cutting money by the foot. Rendered hearts bruised and persons forgotten. Left us breathless for dead. Still, we closed into ourselves. We folded behind lock and key, inhaled through fogs of uncertainty. We'd found fun in the walls of our homes, made it work, fashioned it for play, carved out sections we can feel joy with so we can hold it firm on the days we didn't know what could happen, what was next. Still, for those whom age had known beyond a golden jubilee, whose eyes glaze with film-real memories, whose daughters have vowed to love them in their sunset, whose sons have kissed them in their sunrise. We want your vision of us in full color. Stood still for the emerging minds that must dare to dream in high definitions, for the bodies that must create homes in cardboard shelters. Still for you. Ireland is standing still. But tomorrow, when our knees grow soft with impatience and the gates of our homes swing open, which way would our legs go? Which path does our heart know? Oh, what a really, really powerful poem by Fellas Speaks there, summing up so much of 2020. And we're really grateful to her and to Jennifer O'Connell, Kitty Holland and Cathy Sheridan. That's it for today. It's our last episode of 2020. Roll on 2021 and the vaccine and hopefully at some point a bit of normality returning. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Jennifer Ryan and by Suzanne Brennan. And I really want to thank Jennifer and Suzanne and Cathy Sheridan and also JJ Vernon on sound for all their support, creativity and soundness during what has been a very challenging year for everyone. And I want to thank you, our audience, too. You're so loyal for staying with us and telling us what you think and for all your emails and suggestions. And we hope you'll keep that up. Send us emails on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com and on social media at IT Women's Podcast. We really do love hearing from you. So take care of yourselves and I'll talk to you in 2021. Sing Hosanna's Happy New Year. Hope you enjoyed tonight's celebrations, whatever you're up to. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.